0: I think there's a lot more work to be done, especially with everything that's currently happening due to the coronavirus and um, the Asian hate right now that we're seeing come up in the news um, in America. It's like when you are okay that something is there, but you're not happy about it. So it's like maybe that whole Asian people are okay to be around, but now that there's a reason for us to not be okay with it, we should arc up. That is an issue. That is a major issue.
1: This week on Dirty Linen, we continue to talk about anti-Asian racism, discrimination. And I have brought into the conversation someone who I just, I love for his energy and all the different hats that he wears. And when I say hats, actually, it's quite often, literally. Um, Khan Ong, welcome to Dirty Linen. I am going to get you to do your own introduction because there is just so many things I could say about you. I just don't even know where to start. So take it away, baby.
0: Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I'm Khan for the listeners at home. I am a cook, a presenter, an author. I used to be a DJ. Um, That's kind of it. Right now I own the George on Collins with my business partner and that's kind of what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you do so many different things. And what I love about it, I mean, I see you mostly on social media, but I just, when one of your photos pops up, like it's so, there is just so much heart and energy and gorgeousness. And I don't know, just, just so kind. great, great <laughs> textures. And I just feel like you bring your whole heart to everything that you do.
0: Thank you. That's very, very sweet. Like, Look, um, Instagram is like my socials is something that I kind of take seriously. Like we always shoot the food properly with a photographer, sometimes with a stylist and things like that, just because I kind of want the food to come across how I enjoy it. And I find that when I do it by myself, the lighting's never right. The food doesn't look as good. So it's better just to get people in to take those photos for you.
1: Mm. Well, I mean, I also think the photos of you on your socials are just just I don't know, just really striking. Like I don't know, uh, I, there's a there's a lot of fashion and there's a, there's a there's a there's a look, but there's just yeah. As I say, it's just there's heart. I just feel like what you put out there will mean a lot to a lot of people. And I I suppose I'm when I I'm thinking about people who perhaps don't see themselves represented as much in our society as as they should. So I'm thinking of um, gay men. I'm thinking of Asian men. I'm thinking of um, yeah Asians working in food and. Uh, and in the media, I just think there is, yeah, there. there's just so much good stuff that you bring to this world.
0: Thank you. This is really sweet. Like we've started this interview and all you've done is said nice things about me. <laughs> yeah, sorry. that. But- <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, we should have had we should have had a coffee first, and I could have got all this out. Should, could have got all my gushing out of the way. But I think it's important. I think it's important. Um, so, Khan, a lot of people would have first encountered you when you were on MasterChef. So, I think it was 2018 that you went just about all the way, right? Yes, I um, came
0: third in 2018, so season 10.
1: And then you were back for the All Stars season through that that. Funny old year that we had last year, and and MasterChef was such a bright spot in the year. I think it was so nice to see something that was a little bit normal. And of course, COVID definitely snuck its way in. There were there were there was a, a long period without hugs, um, and yeah, the, those yeah this. Uh, yeah it was really it was actually really emotional and I think the presence and prominence of um, people of Asian heritage on the 2020 MasterChef season was was really notable and striking of course we had um, Melissa Leong who came on as a host and um, she just really brought it and uh, there was a a lot of um, Asian Australian contestants Um, and there was this this moment um, in a challenge where it was all Asian people in the challenge, and um, I would just love you to talk about that moment because I know that uh, Melissa called it out as like a as a as a real moment of representation.
0: Yeah. So in that challenge for me, it was I think it was a fairy tale challenge where there was like five of us, and I think it was myself, Poe, Reynolds, and Jess. Maybe there was four of us. Um, that was wild that was like at the time when you're in a challenge like that you're not really thinking about who's in it with you you're just kind of concentrating on doing your best and it wasn't until I viewed it afterwards that I really understood that that was a moment um I grew up in Australia but I never would have seen anything like that where there was like a whole like a judge and also all the contestants be of Asian heritage so that was absolutely crazy for me
1: yeah, I mean, just, you know, you said this, this wasn't something that you would have seen as you were growing up. Can you talk about, um, whether you think that made your path more difficult did you feel like the you know you couldn't that there were dreams you had that perhaps weren't accessible to you it was yeah
0: I, I, I don't even think it's like a dream like i ne- like i would never have even thought about being on a television show or being in the media because that was not the norm for me that was not what i saw that's not what i like when i turned on my tv that's not what i that what was on the screen so that that was never even like, a thought that went through my head. It kind of all just happened. And I think that now we're seeing so much representation on TV and especially on a show like MasterChef where I think that it's not – it's representation but not tokenism. Um, And, I, and I, I say this all the time that, like, everyone who is on MasterChef is there for a reason. They're there because they can cook and food always is the forefront of all the judging. It's not – oh, let's, like, I actually thought this way back that I was like, oh, I'll be fine. I'm a gay Asian male. I'm going on MasterChef. I'll be fine for a couple of rounds. And literally the first season I went on, I was told to do something or else you're going to go home. And I was like, whoa, this is definitely a food show. And that's what I loved about MasterChef, that we were there not as tokens. We were there to kind of improve and learn and become better cooks.
1: Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's how it should be, right? I mean, it's, I don't know, I, I guess I, it makes me think about quotas and there's so much discussion about quotas when we're talking about fe- um, female representation in politics at the moment. Um, and it is a, it's a topic that sort of um, some people struggle with. It's like, shouldn't people be there on their own merits? But on the other hand, there needs to be, I think, some positive discrimination to create pathways for people who perhaps um weren't able to see them before so I don't know I'm sort of thinking out loud because I can definitely see a case for it in politics that there should be um women should be elevated but yeah what do you what do you think
0: look I I totally understand I see where you're coming from just because I think that the whole discrimination like growing up it's kind of in you, subconsciously, it's in you because you of your surroundings and things like that. So when it goes into jobs, when it goes into the workplace, it's not even a people trying to discrimin- discriminate against other people or races or genders, but it's just something that has become the norm. So I understand what you're saying when you're saying that positive discrimination may be needed, just kind of change that, to change that whole idea, to change that kind of viewpoint. I
1: guess it's like <clears throat> if the playing field is level, then... You, you don't need any, you don't need any quotas, but I guess it, the, the playing field isn't level. And hopefully what people such as yourself are doing is, is leveling that playing field as you strike a path for yourself. Um, Khan, I'd, I'd love to go back to the beginning. Tell, can you tell us about your early childhood?
0: So um, my parents came to Australia as refugees. They were in a refugee camp for four years in Indonesia, and I was born two years into that four years. So I lived on an island called Galang that I have no recollection of um, whatsoever, and I came over when I was about two. Um, my parents lived with um, family basically for the first three or four years of moving to Australia. Mum worked as a seamstress, dad as a butcher, and then I think it was like when I was about 11 or 12 was when dad decided to start his own small business. So they started a butcher together mum kind of was, mum was working at the butcher, but also at night she was um, still sewing. She was making samples for big Australian designers and things like that. So my family's always worked hard. Um, which I'm very, very grateful for, because I feel as though if they didn't kind of make those sacrifices to come to Australia, I probably would never have had the life that I currently have slash or be born. <laughs> um, yeah. So I grew up in Springdale, which is a very, very Vietnamese area. Um, so for me, going to school, I was surrounded by Asian Australian people. So I never really kind of felt out of place until possibly until I was like 16, 17, because after high school, I went to um, Halebury, but it was in Keysborough, which means there was a large um, amount of Asian people there as well. And then I went to Melbourne High and then I went back to Halebury. And it wasn't until after leaving high school and doing, so after, uh, during high school, I did a fashion Course at Melbourne School of Fashion after hours, so Monday to Wednesday. I did like a little diploma in um, garment construction and pattern making, and that's kind of when I was like, oh, I'm I'm a little bit different. There's people that like it's yeah, it's just a little bit different. And then when I, when I started going, uh, when I but then what really changed was when I actually became a DJ because I was in a nightclub and there was probably ten percent, maybe five percent people that looked like me. Um. And I was, so growing up, I didn't have to f- feel as though I needed that representation around me because I grew up in areas where there were a lot of Asian people. But as I got older, that's when I started to notice the differences. Um, um, it was the nightclubs, the big one. That was like, it was kind of like not a spoken thing, but it was kind of, this is not a night for Asian people.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Do you know what I'm do you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. like like when you go out, people are like, Oh, it's an Asian night And I was just like I and I was like, Okay, well that's a different like so what does that mean? Like where am I playing if that's like oh Friday night's an Asian night here, but you're playing on Saturday. So what is Saturday if Friday night's the Asian night? Like that's kind of when things started to irk me a little.
1: Mm. So I mean, when you say irk you, like, did you was it just sitting there in you? Did you say something? Did you I mean, did you go and see what Friday was like? Yeah, I no, know.
0: definitely. I it's like it's a little uh, joke that I have with um a lot of my DJ friends. I was like, I don't understand why I never broke the Asian nights like I've always went and I always went there but I just never felt like I fit in and I was like wait a minute this is so strange because I'm like we we speak this like a lot of the time I would speak to people there in Vietnamese and I'm like this is awesome but I never got booked there and it was kind of like because another night had me as their resident there was a line Mm. that was like we don't share interesting and I just found that baffling. Yeah.
1: What about? Um, I mean, did you grow up knowing that you were gay from a very young age, or was that something that you realised later in life? Like,
0: I, I definitely knew that I was gay uh, younger. When I was a lot younger, I actually, I think, I came out towards the. Uh, the beginning of high school and then i kind of went back in when i went to melbourne high the second high school i went to just because it was an all-boys school and it was really academic based, and i was totally out of my like element i i felt really uncomfortable there um (laughs) mum mum knows because i i forced my way back to halebury i literally came home every pretty much every day just upset sad um sometimes crying um I never felt like I fit in I just, that was just not like I don't know it, it it was a strange situation to be in um and I kind of didn't feel like myself um and I don't would it took me a lot longer in my life to realize that might be a big because that I was like back in the closet I wasn't comfortable I wasn't out so I did my best went back to Halebury um, I got a scholarship to go back to Halibri. That was the only way that mum would let me go. Just because, like, the, the price the price difference, the school fees are just so astronomically different. Um, but when I went back to Halibri, I came out again, and it was the best. I loved that school so much. Um, it was supportive of everything I wanted to do. They were supportive of pretty much just me as a person, and they still are to this day. Like, I still keep in contact with the alumni um, association, like I, I love the school. I could not say anything bad about Halebury. Like, incredible. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that if I didn't go back to Hailibury, I wouldn't be the person I am today. Just because I would not be comfortable with myself. Mum, mum, my family were great. They, mum's different. She's, um, she's not your typical um, Asian mother. Where everyone thinks that Asian mothers are really strict and like. <laughs> And um, being gay is not really a thing in Vietnam. But to her, it was just kind of like, yeah, cool, you're my son, this is life, whatever. <laughs> um, so I really always had that kind of support behind me, which I am so incredibly thankful for. It's
1: incredible to think about these turning points in someone's life, you know, that, and it's amazing that you had the, I guess, the presence of mind or, or, Whatever it was that made you fight to go back to somewhere where you felt like you could be yourself. I mean, I just wonder how different your path would have been if you'd had to sort of, you know, squash yourself into a different mold um, to stay at a school where you felt that, yeah, you just couldn't, you couldn't be who you were.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's. um, I feel as though I've always kind of done that. I think that if something makes me feel uncomfortable, I try to not do it. (laughs) And I feel like a lot of people at home should possibly do the same thing like if, if you don't like it then why 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 are you there why are you pushing along on this if it doesn't make you happy and that like my schooling for that year did not make me happy at all
1: mm. so so can you, t- kind of you you're djing um yeah on the age night uh <laughs> <laughs> you've studied you've studied fashion like tell us tell us where your journey took you
0: next so um when i finished high school i ran off. Um, my, my my dad actually passed away when I was in year 10. Um, and my relationship with my mom after that was really strained. Um, so as soon as I turned 18, I pretty much packed my bags and flew to England, lived in Shoreditch in London, um, applied to go into Central St. St. Martin's, one of the best design schools in the world and was lucky enough to get in. And then I was there for six months and I hated it. Oh. <laughs> I absolutely hated it I, I hated being cold, I hated not knowing anyone. I hated feeling kind of like an outsider always. Um so I came back. I came back. Um I came back and mum and I were starting to get to um like our, our relationship was coming back to normal. And um I basically said for this to keep going, I can't live at home. I can't live with you because that's probably what the issue was. So I when I came back, I moved out, and um, our relationship has gone from strength to strength since then. I see my mum and my sister every Monday, sometimes twice a week. Um, we cook together on Mondays. It's always the same phone call. She gets the call at about 10, 11 o'clock What are you doing? What are you making tonight? Okay, you don't want to cook. I'll cook. Um, and it's always the same. And so, like, well, because mum taught me how to cook, for sure. We, we, we had that just because she, she um, her and dad were. Um, working so hard that the only time that we really had to bond was while she was making dinner and I would always sit on the kitchen counter I remember in a corner and if she needed me to pick leaves like pick herbs I'll do that if she needs me to roll something I'll do that and we'll just chat so food has always been the thing that really connected us
1: yeah beautiful um what's a dish that you guys make together or what's one of one of her dishes that you just absolutely
0: love Okay, so mum has this – there's multiple. One is her spring rolls, which I don't even have the recipe for because she's like, no, they're not the good ones. And I was like, no, they are the good ones. Like, you just don't understand that they're the good ones. Um, And she used to make them and freeze them in the freezer um, and just have them come out whenever she needed them. She doesn't do that anymore. She's just like, nah. But she won't give me the recipe, and I crave it. I crave it. It's a pork spring roll, but um, it's the ratio of pork to – like spice and also carrots and taro. And I hated taro when I was really young, but eating the spring rolls made me love taro. And now I want them. She won't make them. <laughs> <sighs> now I want them. <laughs> it's it's like, it's it's so crazy that it's just like, an, like she doesn't have a recipe for them. Cause I, I'll ask and she's like, no, you just put carrots, taro, like pepper. Yeah. I'm like, cool. Mine never tastes the same as yours though. <laughs> mm, those mum recipes. I know, right? So, Khan, what um
1: what happened next? Like, what were you? Did you get more interested in cooking? Is that what took you to master Like, how did that come about?
0: So, with the with the DJing, I I was a DJ for about eight, nine, maybe ten years. I toured Asia. I played for big um, artists. I I played after parties for Justin Bieber, Mary Cyrus, Eminem. Um, and I hated it. <laughs>
1: What sounds like the dream?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I hate. I absolutely hated. um, I hated. I hated the expectation of having to be drunk. I felt as though. I was a jester, if you kind of know what I mean. Like, I know that I'm there to entertain people, but it was kind of like, why was I not getting bookings unless I was drinking? And that was really what irked me. Like, that really annoyed me. And it annoys me to this day. Like, I I love DJing. Like, don't get me wrong, but I hated doing it as a career. Um, so I still play now from time to time when the like gig is fun and it's like for friends and things like that. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But to do that three, four nights a week, um, it got old real fast. So I found that, um, throughout my whole life, I've held dinner parties, usually once a week, once a fortnight when I was younger with my friends, I'll, they'll come over and I'll do like a feast of like five, six dishes. And it was just an ongoing thing that I've always done. I really enjoy it. Um, on weekends, if I am hungover, the thing that I do is I, I cook because I feel like I've achieved something. Um, and that makes me happy knowing that I didn't spend the whole day sitting on the couch ordering over eats. Um, yeah. So towards the end of my DJ career, I, um, a friend of mine was like, well, why don't you audition for MasterChef? And I was like, oh, no chance. and I'm not going to get on that show. Like, that, uh, like uh, they, they are incredible. Um, so I just didn't. And a girlfriend of mine actually sent through – an application for me incomplete knowing that because it's incomplete, it's going to like, someone's going to be like, Hey, your application is incomplete. Can you complete it? So that came through on my mailbox and I was like, well, oh, you've already done half of it. I might as well just finish the other half of the, um, the application. And um, I did. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. I filmed a video where I was cooking like um, a seafood pasta in my kitchen, floofed for a gig in Bali, realized that I hadn't introduced myself. I hadn't spoken about the dish. I just cooked. Um, so I, on the other end, I filmed like a, um, a master's interview of me introducing myself and overlaying it over the cooking video. Um, yeah. So I was not ready. Love it. <laughs> I was not ready, but I was like, oh, I should probably introduce myself at this point rather than you just watch me rip open a squid and like take the skin off.
1: <laughs> and they obviously loved it.
0: Yeah, they um, well, they saw
1: something in it.
0: Yeah, I um, yeah, I I I, I was fortunate enough to get asked in to do a, like a, a real face to face cook for some of the producers, and I, I don't know if I can swear, but I fucked that up royally. Um, <laughs> I cooked, I cooked, um, I cooked a little Vietnamese floor and then I did like a, a chicken with a garlic, honey, or cash cup, manis, um. Marinade on it, but obviously high sugar levels in the oven, the bottom of the drumstick burn. um Brought it up to the producers at the time, and I I knew straight away that like I, that this dish is not going to get me anywhere. And before they taste it, they're like, "Is are you happy with your dish?" And I was like, "Not really. Uh, <laughs> my my dressing needs balancing. It's not acidic enough. Um, I forgot to peel my." Or I ran out of time, honestly, to peel the shell of my peanuts. Not the like the not the thick shell, but the little skin that sits on top. Like sometimes that's delicious if you like are roasting it and like it's coated in like a sugar or a um some sort of something sweet or something sour or something that's delicious. But this was just roasted peanuts. Probably should have peeled the skin, didn't do it. Um, the top of my chicken gorge, the bottom end a little bit burnt. Maybe eat around it. <laughs> um, that's kind of what I said to them and um. I was like, no, nah, no chance. Am I going through? And in that in that round of auditions, I was the only one that went through. And i i spoke to I spoke to um, one of the producers who's become my friend now. And I was like, well, How did I get through that day? Like, you named every single thing wrong with your dish, and you knew how to fix it. And I was like, Ah, oh, well, that's cool. So yeah, so that that got me through to judges, and it kind of. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to get to top twelve either after that, but um, I mean, sorry, top twenty four. But I did, and first cook, I literally had no idea what I was doing. I was way over my head, like like my depth. I was like out of my comfort zone, and I was just happy to make it that far. And um, about I think about two or three weeks in was when I had that conversation with another producer, and they said to me, "You need to do something, or you're going to get eliminated." And, um, and that week I ended up winning two challenges and an immunity pin because I was so scared of going home. <laughs> I was just like, okay, um, I've got to ramp it up now. Cause I, like, I feel like when you're on MasterChef, there's 24 of you, even when there's like 17, you're like, oh, one out of 17 is going home today. That's not going to be me. So you kind of cruise and it isn't until someone kind of really attacks you or like tells you off that you're like, okay, it's time to get moving.
1: And what did you find within yourself to like go to that next level?
0: um i just didn't play it safe anymore i think the challenge that the challenge that um my first challenge that i won was the first time that i had a tasting during a mystery box so the judges had never asked me to come up to, to present my food during a mystery box because i just played it safe um on that day i was in adelaide and there was beautiful beautiful um there. and i remember reading a book I think it was in a uh, Bray, um, a recipe where the condoms were cooked a certain way in a syrup or some kind of juice to level out how acidic they are. And I was like, genius, like, great book. Um, and so what I did was I, I, I looked at the challenge around me and I was like, okay, well, it's all about suppliers and um, farmers and producers in the area so we've got kwandongs what will pair with that obviously the roux and then i'm like there's salt bush that just comes from the go of the coast that there those three things are the basis of my dish like they they would make total sense together so at that point i was like okay how do i i've never used any of these ingredients before how do i make this comfortable and i thought yeah cool we can make the condons into i will cook it off just like i read so i cooked it off in some plum juice um with the salt bush I've, I've cooked steaks in rubs before so with the salt bush i actually just drenched it in vinegar um cooked it off in the oven like so dehydrated crushed it up and then i actually rolled my cooked roux in it and then so it was like a salt and pepper sorry salt and vinegar roux like um Uh, so so, yeah like crust on the um, kangaroo so it was on that day everything just worked it was like i was on i looked at everything i thought about how the food would go together and it made sense um and that's kind of how i started to look at all the challenges rather than being like let's cook something safe i was like let's cook something that you would be super proud of presenting
1: Mm. and i love the way that you were thinking about it with these these kind of building blocks these these different elements and i suppose it's like all those things that you pointed out about your dish in the beginning, the the first one that that was um that wasn't quite wasn't quite right. It's like you it's those principles of cooking that you I guess you just learned to apply them in a way that um yeah that brought in a bit of flair and and a lot of creativity and um yeah often often running. So um obviously you know it you went almost to the end of that competition, you came out of um, MasterChef and you ended up becoming a restaurateur. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's skip forward to that. What Can you talk about being a restaurateur and, and some of the things that you have encountered?
0: So, like, okay, so I came off MasterChef not thinking that I would ever have a restaurant and it just kind of, it just kind of, I don't know, things happened, conversations were had, deals were made and I was like, okay, I'm a part owner in this restaurant now, which I love it's kind of a mixture of both my world so it's food but it's also it's got a bar that stays open until three so that nightlife aspect is there so it was kind of perfect for me and I found myself um getting more and more involved obviously as the years went on and now I am now I'm like more of the back end of it um the management side um on on operation days I'm Actually, like I'm on the front desk, I'm basically the maitre D. am the person that like seats everyone and makes sure that we can shuffle things around, especially with COVID when we, our numbers were restricted, it was really like we needed to get people in and out at certain times um, to make, well, business work basically. And um, look, the whole racism in the hospitality industry is, I don't think it's something that people... Do on purpose, but it happens. Like for example, when I'm standing at that front desk, it's happened to me multiple times. Where if I'm like, I'm sorry, but like the we're we're completely full. Um, I can find you a table in half an hour. That kind of thing. Someone will always say to me, "Oh, can I speak to blah 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 blah?" And I'll be like, oh, "Sorry, um, um, I don't know who that is." And they'll be like, "Your boss." And I was like, "Oh, you mean..." the manager of my restaurant who also you've said their name wrong. Um, um, And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, and I look at them thinking, you've just tried to go over my head on something that is not changeable and is like, and I I, I can't, I can't kind of like, I think it's because I'm a young Asian man standing at the front desk. (laughs) Not like they don't expect that I own part of the business. And so it's like, no, no, I'll speak to, yeah. Yeah. Someone else. <laughs> oh, it's 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 infuriating. There are days when I know we're in hospital and we can't just get angry. Um, but there are days when I'm standing at that desk and I was like, oh my God, that was the rudest person that I've ever encountered in my life. And it's like, I don't expect people to like know who I am or what I do, but I just expect people to be nice and respectful. Because when I go to a restaurant, I don't do things like that. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, it's a half an hour away. I'll just drink at the bar. Like that's fine. Like it's never. Oh my god. Sorry, I get very um. I get ranty about this.
1: Well, understandably, because it's like someone's trying to go over your head. Can I speak to the manager? Can I speak to the owner? Well, hi, I am the that's owner. That's me. I mean, do, yeah. you, do you say that to them? Like you, you. This is as high as you can go.
0: Actually. There's, there, there was only one time that that happened because, like, usually if they ask me to speak to my, our, our venue manager's name's Maud, if someone's like, um, can I please speak to Maud, then I'll be like, no problems, Maud can deal with it because she'll probably, she usually just goes, well, Khan has final say. Like, she really, like, usually directs it back to me anyway. But there was a guy that was just super rude and he literally turned and went, you know, your boss? And I went, actually, I am the boss, it's my venue. And that was the only time that I ever did it. But I was just, like, fuming at that point. And, but that also makes me realise how people are spoken to in hospital and how possibly our staff is treated, are treated. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's never okay, right? It doesn't...
0: No, it, it doesn't matter. Like, I I could be, like, I could be a waiter. I could be a busie It doesn't matter. Like, you ask things in a polite manner and you'll receive it. So,
1: I mean, where to next, Khan, like, do you feel like there's still work to be done? Do you feel like you, you're you're doing the work just by being there, doing what you do? Like where to where to next? Do you think?
0: I look. I think. I think there's a lot more work to be done, especially with everything that's currently happening due to the coronavirus and um, the the Asian hate right now that we're seeing come up in the news um, in America. That says a lot. That says that maybe it was all just what's the right word for this? The people were kind of just uh, like, oh, I need to find this word. It's like when you are okay that something is there, but you're not happy about it. So it's like maybe that whole Asian people are okay to be around, but now that there's a reason to, for us to not be okay with it, we should arc up. That is an issue. That is a major issue.
1: So you're saying that there is sort of residual racism or it's sort of brewing there under the surface and then what people feel like they're given an excuse to let it arise?
0: Like an excuse. Well, yeah, because like we're seeing, we're seeing it a lot in the news right now. And and like, I don't, I don't think that it's gotten as bad in Australia, but it's really sad and it's really angering to watch a 60 year old, Asian Chinese Grandma get hit on the street for no apparent reason,
1: yeah, which is stuff we've seen coming out of the u s There's been a lot of incidents reported of um yeah, like just outright violence um it's so it's I mean it's so distressing
0: it's it's super distressing, and I get it. Like people do it because they are scared, but that's still not an excuse. It's the same way that people reacted towards Muslims when September 11 happened, and all of the, those things. It's it's people react out of fear, but it's still not okay to do so because it wasn't it wasn't anyone's fault. Like a virus, like a global pandemic, is no one's fault.
1: Mm. I think it shows that. I mean, you know, with the leadership in the U.S., I mean, Trump was so explicitly anti-China, and I think I think what it shows is that when society is is stressed, and I suppose there's always people in society who are, you know, going through their own battles and susceptible to, um, to. Uh, having scapegoats and having enemies created for them, and then they'll act out on on that fear um, and that sort of manufactured anger and righteousness. I think we're we're susceptible to that in Australia as well. Um, and we've certainly had you know political leadership and and other voices in society, um, columnists, right-wing columnists, that sort of thing that that um, bring out the worst in people rather than helping steer people towards towards the good that's in them
0: i think that at the end of the day it's about learning it's about respect and it's about kind of just understanding each other like there is no us against them mentality there shouldn't be that that shouldn't be a thing we should just be humans um and th- even the fact that we're having this conversation is infuriating like it's like it shouldn't be something that needs to be spoken about but it does and like that in itself is a problem
1: yeah it is i mean i feel like i i've in, within myself, I feel like I've got a lot of layers to this conversation because I also feel like um, I wish this wasn't something that was there to be spoken about. Um,
0: but we need to.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's, it's it's just the reality of it. And, like, I appreciate you for even, like, having this conversation <laughs> with me because I think these conversations are definitely needed um, for us as people to grow.
1: Yeah, I think so too, and I'm really grateful to you for, for um, bringing your perspective to it. Um, yeah, I think it's it's got to be about understanding and empathy and compassion and, as you say, realising that there isn't an other, that we are all um, here, um, you know, living on this world together.
0: We're trying our best. <laughs> We're literally all just trying our best. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it's it's just... It's one of these issues that like it's not the majority of the time, like I don't feel like this the majority of the time. There are days where I go into work, there are months where I go into work, and everything is incredible. people are great, customers are like amazing, and it just runs smoothly. But then all it needs is that one bad experience me to me be for me to be like, Oh shit, this still exists today in twenty twenty one this still exists,
1: mm. yeah we got to break it down. And I guess one of the things that's come out of these conversations I've been having over the past week or so is everybody is empowered to sort of start where they are and create a little bit of change. And just as, you know, negative things have ripple effects, definitely so do the good things.
0: Yeah. Look, I, um, I, I think you're across this. Uh, restaurants using um, uh, Asian, like well, I don't know how to say this, um, restaurants using language that was a very stereotypical kind of a caricature of an Asian person's language, even the fonts used, so things like that, that all I think also needs to change um, just because well, you're, that's kind of selling an image of culture that isn't correct.
1: Yeah. Um Well, we've we've, um, had on the podcast yesterday Yvonne C. Lamb from Gourmet Traveller, the digital editor of Gourmet Traveller, who wrote an excellent article about racist restaurant names. And in in her fantastic article, she does talk about, yeah, that sort of, um, I guess, that Asian caricature or that sort of flattening of Asian culture into some sort of, you know, whether it's, it's, it's a font. It's stereotyping. It's, it, yeah. yeah.
0: It's, it's a font or it's the wrong pronunciation of the, the letters I N G like things like that. Um, yeah. Well, I, And growing up when you saw that, when I saw that at restaurants, I was like, okay, cool. Now when I see it, I'm like tone deaf, like completely tone deaf.
1: I guess that's it, Khan, isn't it? It's like, you know, you, you people don't <clears throat> come to these conversations or these these issues and situations fully formed. We've all got work to do. We we can all keep learning. We can. There are some things that you know we just didn't. I guess you know some people might not have realised were um, offensive. Yeah, <laughs> some time ago, but now as we we all learn how to think about these things and learn about the hurt that things can create, then yeah, we just always try to do better. I mean, and I'm, I'm saying this to myself as, you know, it's like we're we're all on a journey.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Like I was, I I think we've spoken about this before off the podcast. Um, There are things where I make food and I'm like, is this offensive? Is me changing this or calling it this is that offensive? Should I not do that? For example, um, the, the there was a whole last like a whole kind of trend last year of doing things that were tandoori um, and so that extended to proteins, vegetables, whatever but calling it tandoori something but then usually a tandoori chicken for example, it's called that because it's cooked in spices in yogurt in a tandoor so if I'm not doing those things can I still call that dish a tandoor whatever protein or vegetable it is like when 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 i'm making recipes i've i need to take a step back and look at that um i know that that becomes a very minute thing but if it's offensive to some people is it not worth it
1: yeah absolutely and i think you know it doesn't it doesn't hurt you to think about that or to ask yourself that question and you know um i mean i guess you've also got something a story along those lines about barn me haven't you
0: yeah. Yeah, So the bun mi thing it infuriates me. Um seeing bun mi salads, seeing bun tacos and I'm like a bun mi literally translate in Vietnamese to bread. <laughs> like it literally translates to those that. So if you don't understand that the dish itself is a bread dish, could you like what are you really saying? Is it an appropriation of something that is just pop- popular? Cuz a bun me salad is is not that, that doesn't exist like that's not a thing um and I and I see it I see it from time to time and, and I, I chuckle but sometimes I'm like wait why do I just keep chuckling at this when it's like completely wrong well even the spelling of Bun mi um I've actually come across a couple of really big chefs that spell it not correctly they spell it Um, B-A-H-N and it it annoys me as well but then it's like am I being precious but then even even the thought of me (laughs) thinking if I'm being precious kind of annoys me as well and I'm like wait am I allowed to be uh, precious about this yeah I do I can be it's my heritage it's my culture and I want it to be represented properly
1: yeah yeah I mean, I think, yeah, it's it, I, I, yes, you can be precious, <laughs> of course you can be
0: <laughs> nah, I, I literally am like, I've just spent this whole forty minutes ranting. <laughs> I'm like I've said, just I've just been angry this whole time.
1: <laughs> I really don't I really don't think you have been. I think you've been really illuminating and you brought a lot of light to issues that are really important, as well as sharing your um really quite wonderful story. you've done. You've done so much already, Khan, and I really can't wait to see what you do next and next and next and next. And, um, yeah, I'm really grateful to you for coming along today to um, share your perspective and your story. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, um,
1: yeah, really great. Is there is there any last words that you want to have to the world?
0: Um, just be nice. <laughs> just be nice. Think about how the way that you act or speak affects other people. Um, I think just take a step back. I, I, obviously, it's harder to do than say, and I try every single day to do so. But just be a nice person. Don't be a jerk. It
1: sounds quite simple.
0: Yeah, just don't be a jerk.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Khan.
0: Thank you so much for having me, babe.
1: This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Valant we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at dirtylinenpodcast. Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.